Well, good morning. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, if you are uh, visiting with us, uh, let me again welcome you and uh, also tell you that my name is John Stork. I am uh, the interim here uh, at Res Pres. <clears throat> and uh, as I tell you that, let me also tell you that uh, I recognize, let me also say I recognize that uh, you are all excited and ready to hear from your new pastor. Uh, uh, every week and not the outgoing interim, and I get it. That's exactly how you should feel at this moment. <laughs> uh, but there is a purpose and intention behind why I'm still preaching. It's not because we arm wrestle and Matt lost or he lost a bet. <laughs> it's actually because the session thought it was a it would be a good and prudent thing for Matt as he arrives here in Madison to take some time to to get to know you to take a season to spend getting to know you relationally, getting to know Res Prez corporately and the rhythms uh, that Res Prez goes through, and, and to get to know Madison itself. So uh, I, I, I tell you that um, because that will only serve him and you all well when he does start to preach. So hang in there. Uh, my time is almost complete, and you will soon be hearing uh, the sermon preached uh, every week uh, by your senior pastor. That day is coming. Uh, but with that said, this morning we, we continue in our sermon series looking at some Old Testament prophetical works. And today we, we come to the book of Joel. And Joel is a, a, a bit puzzling when it comes to dating um, because he doesn't give us specific clues and markers as to the date of his writing like some other prof prophetical prophets do. But I, but I think there's good reason to put him in the post-exilic period. That is the time when God's people had returned from exile back into their homeland. Uh, you see, unlike other prophets, Joel doesn't mention a king. Uh, he also seems to demonstrate a knowledge of several of the other prophetical writings. He seems to be drawing on other predecessors' writings. And in addition, he references the exile that God's people had been in, in chapter 3 of his book. So for these and other reasons, I think it's reasonable to believe that Joel is ministering to the post-exilic people of God. And so with that in mind, as the background to this book, we pray with me one more time and ask that God might give us ears to listen and hear in our times today what the prophet still might have to say to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask now that you would meet with us however we have come into this place this morning. You are the one who has the words of eternal life. And so it is not the words of man that we need to hear this morning. It is you, Heavenly Father. It is you, Jesus Christ. So by your Holy Spirit now, would you meet with us that we might be convinced when we leave this place that we have in fact met with the resurrected King and Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We pray these things for your sake. Let me start uh, with a question. Uh, in, a, in a life, in a world of adversity and disappointment, how do you avoid cynicism becoming the primary heart posture and mentality undergirding all that you do? As you look around, as you experience the hardships, the trials, the adversity, both personally 
in your life and as you look around at the world itself at large. How do you avoid cynicism? How about that for a cheery start to a sermon? The truth is we live in a time where it can be almost unavoidable to be unaffected by the skepticism and cynicism of our times. In 2021, there was an article in the Atlantic Journal online entitled, American Cynicism Has Reached Its Breaking Point. The next year, in a Harvard Business Review article entitled, Don't Let Cynicism Undermine Your Workplace, Jamil Zaki makes the case that cynicism about people and about institutions is at an all-time high in human civilization, and that the consequences of cynicism are threefold. One, that cynics earn less money over the course of their lives. Two, cynics are more likely to experience depression. And three, cynics are at a greater risk physically of heart disease than non-cynics. even throws in for fun in the article that many people actually think the cynic, that cynics are actually smarter people than non-cynics, even though research has shown that just not to be true. That's the air that you and I are breathing today. And so whether you are here this morning as a follower of Jesus or not, we've all been affected and hurt by circumstances and people that can make resisting such debilitating cynicism sometimes seemingly impossible. And I would make the case this morning to you, and I believe the Bible makes the case as well, that one's expectation and confidence about the future can go a long way to help you get through very difficult times and circumstances and even provide a peace in the midst of troubling times and storms and a way out of cynicism. Because if you have hope for something that at least one day there will be a reckoning, that things will be put right, you actually could endure quite a bit without succumbing to paralyzing cynicism. So let me ask you another question. Is there anything right now, even slightly, that you're holding on to for hope for the future? And furthermore, how trustworthy and reliable is such a hope? Because historical Christianity makes a claim about the future that if it is true, I would argue, has no rivals in its capacity to override any and all susceptibility to the paralyzing cynicism that we are regularly tempted to submit to. And I would also argue that it's actually grounded in a promise of one who has demonstrated again and again his commitment to full redemption and salvation of his people, and in fact, the entire cosmos. And it's not pie in the sky. It's not in the sky at all. And it's not naive optimism about the future. 
It's much more in tune with reality than a lot of so-called Christian messages about the future suggest. And this is actually the greater and brighter message Joel has, the prophet Joel has, for his time and for ours. You see, God's people in Joel's day would have had many reasons to give in to paralyzing cynicism. Forgive my Portillo's cup, I forgot my water bottle. For the first chapter and a half prior to the passage that Matt read just a moment ago, Joel recounts the many ways that God's agrarian people had endured hardship and adversity. He notes the natural disasters, the droughts, the locust swarms that had wiped out, obliterated entire harvests. He notes the enemy invaders who ruthlessly ridiculed the culture of God's people and their history by destroying their homeland, their capital, and their temple, and by carrying them off in chains into exile. And yet Joel also reminds God's people that all of these experiences were already warned about in the Torah, the Old Testament people's Bible of the time. Like other prophets, Joel appeals to the provisions and stipulations of the covenant relationship that God entered into with his people when Moses was still their leader. In Deuteronomy, we read about the promised flourishing that God's people could expect and be assured of as they faithfully served and followed him. On the one hand, and the disciplinary consequences when they stopped living as lights to the rest of the nations on the other. And furthermore, if God's people completely abandoned their first love, completely disregarded his commandments, God would go as far as using exile as a disciplined measure to bring them back to humble repentance. We've seen these themes before. But even then, God would remain committed to his covenant and to his people. You see, the truth and reality and the basis that undergirded the entire covenant God made with his people was that he had already, on his own, committed himself to his people. Even as harsh as some of the consequences were, the issue was never about whether they were or were not God's people. That was never in question. The call to faithful obedience was never a means for them to prove they were worth God's love. It was never about earning his favor. God made it clear from the very beginning. I didn't choose you for anything significant in yourself. I chose you out of my grace. Out of my undeserved grace, I commit my steadfast love and kindness to you. And so all of the commands, all of the instructions, all of the imperatives of the covenant were situated in the great indicative that it was Yahweh himself who called his people, who rescued them out of the house of slavery in Egypt and made them his treasured possession. It was precisely because they were his people, that is his special beloved treasured possession, that God called them to walk in holiness so that the other nations might be witnesses to what life looks like under the reign of a good and benevolent creator. And then themselves would want to come and know 
him as their own God and leave behind their false gods and idols that only leave human beings worse off than before. And so one of Joel's primary purposes, like the other prophets, was to remind God's people that a lack of faithfulness to the covenant and to their God would mean life would not flourish. Life, they would not prosper. And that had been, in fact, God's people's experience. But furthermore, immediately prior to this passage, Joel speaks of the day of the Lord. And it's a theme that many prophets refer to. However, whereas Joel references the phrase day of the Lord five times in just three short chapters, that exact phrase is only used 11 other times in all the rest of the Old Testament. In other words, it's a key theme for Joel, the day of the Lord. And the image we, we are given by Joel and the other prophets about the day of the Lord is graphic and it's ominous, especially for those who set themselves up in rebellion and as arrogant enemies against their creator and the Lord of all. The day of the Lord is when God will sort out and adjudicate the affairs of all human beings and will administer his cosmic justice. And so for those arrogant enough to scorn God and his kindness and who make a living dehumanizing others through violence and abuse, it is a day to dread and there would be no reason to hope. Cynicism would be a reasonable response. But there is another aspect to the day of the Lord. Because it's not only gloom to God's enemies. Joel's message is that for those who humbly repent and align their lives and their motives to God's design and to his reign, there will actually be reason for great joy in spite of all that they have endured. And so the picture of the future that Joel paints is powerful enough, I would make the case, to overcome even the most devastating grip of cynicism. You see, for an agrarian society that lived in the center of the ancient Near Eastern world, where empires were rising and falling in ways that regularly affected and impacted their lives, this would be an amazing promise to hold on to. Again, in verses 19, 20, and 25 in the passage, we see God promises that he will completely remove all of their enemies. They will no longer be attacked. They will no longer be threatened by the armies around them. In verses 23, 24, and 26, God says he will send early and late rain, abundant rain for their crops. Again, this is an agrarian society. The threshing floor will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with wine and oil. That is party language. <laughs> Furthermore, he will even restore all that the locusts had destroyed. All that had been lost by the natural disasters. In verse 19, God promises also, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. And then twice, word for word, in verses 26 and 27, God says specifically, my people shall never again be put to shame. God even cares for the emotional and mental well-being of his people. And he is not unmoved or indifferent to the ways they have suffered shame in the eyes of the nations around them. And God addresses that. And he also has something to say to all of creation itself. In verse 29, 21, 
Fear not, O land. He's talking to the earth. Verse 22, fear not, you beasts of the field. But finally, and we've seen this theme before, God promises, you shall know. In that day, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. Now, all of those promises about a favorable future would have sounded astonishing in the ears of someone living in the agrarian society of the ancient Near Eastern world that Israel was. But these promises about the future for those who bend their knee to their creator and redeemer are just as hopeful, I would make the case, if not more so, for us living today in the 21st century. And that's because these promises are not only a promise to undo all of the bitter experiences God's people Israel had gone through, they're even more so a promise by God to redo, to restore all God intended for all of humanity and this world at the very beginning at creation. You see, God intended for all creation at the beginning before the fall to flourish and to justly and benevolently be cared for by humanity and not to fear humanity. And therefore, God tells creation, do not fear any longer. God intended for humanity to live a life of blessing with the earth yielding good things for us to enjoy without the thorns, without the ground working against us. And here God promises the grain and the wine will flow unhindered. At creation, God intended for humanity to live completely without shame in relationships. And God reiterates the day is coming again when he will remove our shame. And finally, God promises to eternally be in the midst of his people. It is why he created all of this and us in the first place for reasons known only to the triune Godhead. He desired to share his presence and himself with those he had absolutely no obligation to make. And one day, nothing, not even the sin, not even the unfaithfulness that has entered the world, entered our hearts, will hinder perfect communion with the one in whose image we are made and with whom we originally enjoyed perfect fellowship with. This is a promise Joel is giving to undo and to set to right all that is wrong in your relationship relationships, all that is wrong in your work, all that is wrong in your own self. All the ways that the various aspects of your life, of my life, that now seem to be working against us will one day be fully addressed and corrected. And sitting here this morning, this side of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, we have all the more reason to hope and to trust that this future does in fact await us even as we remain in this fallen world. You see, as a sign that this promise can be counted on, Joel ends the passage by saying, in that day I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. 
And in Acts 2, Peter cites this prophecy from Joel. On the day of Pentecost, when Jesus sent forth his spirit as a mark and a proof of his vindication as Messiah and his reign, sons and daughters prophesied on the day of Pentecost. Peter saying, this is being fulfilled now. And then we are told that the witnesses on that day, they're hearing Peter preach. And Luke in Acts says that they were cut to the heart. And they say to Peter, what should we do? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For these promises... All of these promises are for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now certainly, Joel could not see that the full execution of the day of the Lord wasn't actually going to happen all at once. We live in what theologians refer to as the already and the not yet. Jesus is still in the process of making all things new. That is true. But according to Joel and affirmed by Peter, the, whole, the gift of the Holy Spirit itself was God's down payment on his promise to fully undo all of the aspects of the fall, every single one of them. He comes to make his blessings known, far as the curse is found. That's how extensive his redemption project is. And so the path to a sure hope and confidence, even in difficult times, for all who God is kind and gracious enough to call to himself, is according to Joel, is according to Peter, humble repentance and reliance in faith upon Jesus Christ. It is there that a legitimate, hopeful confidence about the future can be found that is powerful enough to overcome the most jaded and cynical heart among us. This morning I was trying to come up with a quote that I thought I remembered uh, the late Tim Keller saying, and I cannot remember, and if you remember, if you can help me with this, this would be great. This is a terrible way to introduce a quote, by the way. <laughs> and, if, and, if, and if you look this up and you don't find anything by Tim Keller, maybe C.S. Lewis, then just attribute it to me. <laughs> but the idea that, I, was, that I, I remember hearing said was something to the fact that the aftertaste of life's worst trials, worst Adversity that we experience in this life will be completely non-existent, not even memorable when we sit and enjoy the great feast that is promised to us in the new heavens and the new earth. We won't even remember, as hard as it is now, as great the taste of adversity, of trial is in our mouth now, won't even remember. That day is coming, according to Joel. I close with this. This week I, I came across a video of a guy named John, who ironically grew up not too far from my neighborhood in Queens. 
And this John makes a living. He's been doing this for 30 years, picking up bottles and trash around the city and reselling it. And he makes several thousand dollars per month doing this. And he shared with the guy interviewing him that he's found gold, cash, and Cartier watches. <laughs> In the interview, he shares a little bit about his story. And he's got a very rough past. Uh, he did some very awful, awful things, and he spent 10 years in prison serving time for them. But while in jail, three women from the Bronx came and preached the gospel to him. And he came to faith. And in the, inter in the video, the interviewer asked him, tell me about your relationship with God. And this is what John says. <laughs> so there's this great scripture. For God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. In other words, before Genesis 1-1, he had already called me. Since then, I have screwed up a million times. <laughs> I've been used by God a million times, but I have screwed up a million times. God knew who I was going to be, knew what I was going to do, knew I was going to pick up cans one day before it ever happened. But that scripture tells me he still loves me. It tells me he seated me at Christ's right hand in the heavenly places. I'm seated there right now, whether I deserve it or not. This is the street theologian from Queens. To which the interviewer responds, so is that hope for the future? Is that something that you hold on to now? John says, it's difficult. But I've seen so many things that I firmly believe God is real. And therefore, I believe his promises in his word, and I stand on them. I don't deserve it, but I simply thank God for his grace, you know? The interviewer says, when you get to heaven, what are you going to ask God? When I get to heaven, I'm going to say, why did you choose me? Who am I that you chose me? You've got a place waiting for me in heaven. There's rivers, there's streams. Language from Joel, I insert there. I'm good to go. I can't stop smiling down here. How will I ever stop smiling there? But then my favorite line comes from the next question he's asked by the interviewer. The interviewer says, what do you think God will say to you at that time, in that moment? And with a chuckle, John responds, I think God's going to say, you could have done so much better. I had so much more for you, you big dummy. <laughs> I think that's the queen's street level interpretation of the message of Joel and the rest of the prophets. <laughs> you big dummy. <laughs> God looks at his people not to shame them, but he looks at us and he says, I'm calling you to a life of following me, of obedience and repentance, because I want the best for you. That's why I call you to follow me. I have set a future for you that is sure. No, you don't deserve it. It's my sheer grace, but I give it to you freely. You have no idea of the future waiting for you. But there is going to come a day I'm going to wipe away all of your tears. And you will never stop smiling. But you, because of that, you even have reason to smile That's the promise. That's the hope. That if you're in Jesus Christ, 
this morning. You and I have to look forward to. And in those most difficult, darkest moments, when it would be easy to succumb to cynicism, to throw up and shrug your arm, or just simply just check out, hold on to that hope and that promise of what is waiting for you in the future when God will completely overhaul and redo and adjudicate and address all that is wrong in this life now and will offer you a future and will give us a future far greater than we could possibly imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you again for these words, though written thousands of years ago. We thank you for the assurance, the promise that you put forth. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe that this future genuinely does await us. That you are leading us towards the new heavens and the new earth when you will make all things right again. May this hope, may this expectation of that glorious future, Jesus, when you completely make all things new, may that be what sustains us and undergirds our heart posture to whatever you allow to come our way in this life. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.